Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Jim Melnick continues our series of messages on the Gospel according to Mark, today looking at chapter 8, verses 1 through 30. And now, here's Jim. Well, this morning, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 30. Now, there are four events that transpire within these verses. There's the feeding of the 4,000, a warning that Jesus gives to his disciples, the healing of a blind man at Bethsaida, and Peter's confession of Christ. Well, we have a lot to cover this morning, so let's dive right into the deep end of this. Now, Mark chapter 8 starts off with the feeding of the 4,000. This account of the feeding of the 4,000 is very similar in nature to the feeding of the 5,000 that Carrie spoke on a few weeks ago, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on the miracle itself. But we will take a brief look at Jesus' reaction to the people's desire to spend time with him. The theme that's attached to the passage this morning is Jesus, the bread from heaven. At the beginning of Mark chapter 8, Jesus said to his disciples, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. Jesus had compassion for the physical needs of the people. And he took the initiative to feed those who chose to forego food in order to be nourished by his words. In the real sense of the phrase, bread from heaven, Jesus not only was the physical bread that satisfied their hunger, but he was also the spiritual bread that satisfied their souls. I counted eight times in the Gospels that record Jesus expressing that he had compassion for someone, either directly or indirectly, as in the parable of the prodigal son, in which God had compassion for those who were lost and then were found. In each of these times, the compassion that Jesus had is partnered with action on his part. With compassion, Jesus taught with the authority of God. With compassion, Jesus healed the sick and cast out evil spirits. But how does that apply to us? How does that apply to us today? We cannot heal the sick because we are not God. We cannot cast out evil spirits. Though many can teach. None can teach with the same authority that Jesus Christ taught with. And we certainly can't forgive sins as we're not God. So what does compassion look like for us today? Well, if Jesus partnered compassion with action, the word that is partnered with us for for compassion is love. We are called to love. Love those who are hard to love. Love those who want nothing to do with us. Love those who even want to harm us. And love those who want nothing at all to do with God. In essence, we are to love with the same love that God has shown the world. The love that we are called to have for others can manifest itself in many different ways, more ways that are, than we have the time to uh, um, dive into this morning here with the time that we have. Now, is it possible to love somebody without having compassion on them? I believe it is, depending on what that love is based on. But I don't believe that it is possible to have compassion for someone without first having love for them. Well, let's uh, start reading in the Mark chapter 8 this morning. We're going to start picking up the reading after the 
accounts of the feeding of the 4,000, starting in verse 9 in Mark chapter 8. About 4,000 men were present, and having sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. Jesus had been in the region of the Decapolis, that is, in the southeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Now that we are told, he got back into his boat and crossed over towards the region of Dalmanutha. Although not entirely sure, scholars believe that this was on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, near Tiberias. But Jesus crossed back and forth across the Sea of Galilee a lot. I can't say for sure, but I wonder if at least part of the reason that he did this was it afforded him some peace and quiet time away from the crowds while he was in the boat. And it certainly gave him some quiet time with his disciples. Here we are told that some Pharisees came to question Jesus. And on the outside, Jesus' response seemed harsh to them. Why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given it. You can almost sense the frustration in his answer. Now in Matthew's account, Jesus responds with the following statement to the same uh, occurrence found in Matthew 16, verse 4. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus left them and went away. Well, all throughout the region of Galilee, Jesus had been performing miracles and teaching with authority. Yet this was not enough to convince many of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and even scribes that this could be the Christ, or even to come up with the question, could this be that this could be the Christ? Or even to come up with the question, could this be? Jesus was not some puppet whose strings could be pulled to perform on the whim of the religious leaders. This sign that Jesus had given them, that there would be no sign except for the sign of Jonah, that must have been confusing for them when they heard it. This sign, of course, would become clear for many after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. For just as Jonah spent three days in the belly of the great fish, so Jesus would spend three days in the belly of the earth. Now, is it wrong to ask God for a sign? Not necessarily. Not if it's asked with the right heart and with the right intent. Remember Gideon? He asked God for a sign not once, but twice. God had chosen Gideon to lead his army against the armies of the Midianites and the Amalekites. Although God had shown Gideon earlier through miraculous signs that Gideon was to be God's chosen leader, Gideon still asked God for a sign just to be sure. You remember how the story goes. Gideon placed a piece of fleece on the threshing floor and he asked for the fleece to be wet with dew in the morning but the grass around it to be dry just to make sure that he's the right man for the job. Well, the next day, it was just as Gideon had asked. The fleece was soaking wet, but the ground around it was completely dry. But apparently this wasn't enough to convince Gideon, because he asked God for another sign. This time he said, let the fleece be dry, and the ground all around it be wet with dew the next morning. Then I'll know that I'm the right man for the job. Well, God complied with Gideon's request for a sign, and Gideon would go on to lead the Israelites to victory as God's appointed leader. 
So what's the difference between asking for signs and the Pharisees asking for signs? I believe the Gideon that the, I believe the difference has to do with Gideon's heart. See, he had a heart that was trusting God, that was believing in God, but he just needed some reassurance. He just needed to be reassured that he was that right man for the job. As I thought about this, it reminded me the first time I ever tried downhill skiing. See, I tagged along with my older cousin once and her boyfriend to Blue Mountain in Collingwood. Since I'd never been skiing before, I got outfitted with all the rental equipment, and they took me to the bunny hill. And uh, they taught me how to snowplow. They tried to teach me how to turn. We went up and down that bunny hill a few times, and they said, let's go try something a little bit more challenging. So they took me up to the next hill. In reality, it was probably just slightly steeper than the bunny hill. But as I stood at the top of this hill looking down, I'm telling you, it was like I was standing on the precipice of the abyss. I thought to myself, are you nuts? You want me to go down here? I needed that reassurance in my life. I needed to be told that I was the right man for the job. Now, I know this is nothing like the reassurance Gideon was looking for. My battle was not against the Amalekites and the Midianites. My, balance, my battle was against my fear in this mountain. But they gave me that reassurance with just some following, follow-up instructions. They told me, just go down the hill sideways, back and forth in a zigzag motion. You can go as slow as you want. And they said, if you start to go too fast, just sit down and you'll come to a stop. And they also said, don't worry about anybody behind you, because if they want to go faster than you, it's up to them to get out of your way. But I was probably thinking, yeah, but what if the guy behind me was no better off than I am? But anyway, I worked up my courage, gave myself a push, and uh, I made it down in one piece. And I went back up and tried it again, back and forth, and I was starting to enjoy it. And I think my cousin and her boyfriend wanted to take off on their own, so they left me with some parting words. They said, enjoy the day, and whatever you do, make sure you do not go down any runs that are marked with a black diamond. And anybody who's a skier will understand the wisdom of those words for a beginner. The reassurance. Gideon wanted it and needed it. I needed it. But what about the Pharisees? What was their case? See, in the case of the Pharisees and Sadducees, their hearts were ones of disbelief. They didn't need reassurance. Their minds had already been made up. Their hearts were hardened to the point that they weren't asking for a sign or even hoping to be convinced that Jesus was who he claimed to be. No, they had already convinced themselves that Jesus could not be the Messiah. In fact, just earlier, they were accusing Jesus that his power to heal people came from being in league with Satan. In a way, these Pharisees were saying, if you really are who you say you are, then give us a conclusive sign directly from God to prove it. But Jesus had had enough of their antics, and he spent no more time on them. Now, while they were in the boat, Jesus took the opportunity to warn his disciples about the threat that the Pharisees would pose to the nation of Israel. Let's continue with our reading, picking up at verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed it with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of this discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? 
Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves of bread for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? He answered, seven? He said to them, do you still not understand? Apparently the disciples were still proving to be slow learners. Perhaps they were overthinking Jesus' warning to watch out for the yeast of that of the Pharisees and Herod. See, they were probably thinking more literally in Jesus' warning, whereas Jesus was speaking metaphorically. So what is the symbolism between Herod and the Pharisees and the yeast? Herod is probably mentioned here because if the region of Damanutha was in fact close to, close to Tiberias, then they would have been close to the palace of Herod Antipas at that time. Now, anyone who's ever baked bread knows that yeast is required if you want anything other than flat bread. Yeast is an organism that loves feasting on sugar. And as it does so, the yeast generates gas and burps CO2 or carbon dioxide. And this carbon dioxide gets trapped in the gluten, causing it to rise. And when you bake, bake that uh, dough, you get wonderful fluffy bread to eat. Well, obviously, Jesus wasn't talking about the dangers of the Pharisees and Sadducees having gas. But Jesus was warning about a very real and serious danger of the attitude or the mindset of the Pharisees working its way through the nation of Israel. East was a common Jewish metaphor for an invisible, pervasive influence. In this context, the yeast referred to a gradual increase of unbelief. This unbelief in Jesus by the Pharisees and Herod lay behind the demand for a sign that was made by them. Their minds were already made up and their questioning wasn't in search of answers, but rather they were looking to trap Jesus with his answer. And now Jesus was warning his disciples not to let the yeast of unbelief enter their lives. This attitude of a number of the Jewish religious leaders continued right up to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And if we take a look at the account of that in Matthew, Matthew chapter 27, verse 41 to 43, we find, in the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. But Jesus remained silent on the cross to them and their accusations. In his silence, Jesus spoke loudly in the days to come. I'll show you that it is far greater to come up from the grave than to come down from the cross. Well, now we come to an, another miracle in Mark's gospel. This miracle has quite a unique twist to it. In fact, it's the only recorded miracle that takes place in two stages. And this miracle is only found in the book of Mark. We can read about that in verses 22 to 26. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus touched his, put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, 
His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. Now reading between the lines, an argument can be made that Mark included this miracle as a connecting link. A connecting link between the rebuke for his disciples when he warned him about the yeast of the, unfair, the, yeast of the Pharisees and their misunderstanding of that warning and a connecting link between what would happen next when Jesus takes his disciples on a field trip to Caesarea Philippi. When the people who brought this blind man to Jesus and begged him to heal him, Jesus agreed. But he didn't heal the man on the spot as he often did, as he often healed others, with just simply a word, or even just by their faith. Instead, Jesus led the man out of the village, presumably to be away from the crowds. Jesus could have simply healed the man of blindness without any action at all on his part. But instead, he spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him. Can you imagine going to the optometrist today and have him say to you, let me spit on your eyes so you can see a little bit better? Yeah, it might sound disgusting to us today, but as Trevor spoke on the subject last week, I'm sure the blind man didn't mind when the results were made obvious to him. But when Jesus asked him, do you see anything? And the man had some vision restored, but it was as if he was looking through a cloud or a haze. It wasn't until Jesus touched his eyes the second time that he could see clearly. It can be argued that the blind man's partial restoration of his sight was that the, Jesus performed the first time can be analogous with the limited understanding that his disciples were displaying as they traveled with Jesus around the region. They knew something was special about Jesus, but they couldn't still quite figure out what that was. But just as the blind man's sight was fully restored the second time that Jesus touched him, so too the disciples' understanding of who Jesus would was would become clear in the days to come, especially after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we'll see very soon by the next event that transpires that the disciples were about to take a very big step in the right direction in this way. Let's finish off uh, reading the verses that are before us this morning. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 30. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Our overall theme this morning has been Jesus, the bread from heaven. I don't often put titles to messages, but I've done so with the message this morning. I've subtitled the message this morning, Who do you say I am? Here at approximately the halfway point of Mark's gospel, Mark Mark records Peter's confession of Jesus being the Messiah, the Christ. Up to this point, the underlying question has been, who is he? In Mark and other Gospels as well, the question keeps coming up, who is he? Well, right from the beginning of Mark, the question of who is he was being asked by some and being answered by others. In Mark chapters 1 and 3, Jesus drove out evil spirits. These spirits cried out in acknowledgement of who he was, such as uh, the incident we have in Mark chapter 1, verse 24, when they said, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. 
These spirits knew who Jesus was, but he commanded them to keep silent his true identity. See, the time had not yet come for full disclosure of who he was and what his mission was. Well, then we have the Pharisees, and as we looked at earlier, the Pharisees and scribes were in complete denial of any possibly heavenly connection as they attributed his power to heal people coming from Satan. We find that in Mark chapter 3, verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. That's how the Pharisees and scribes answers the question, Who is he? Well, the ordinary people around Jesus were asking, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. And some people were starting to wonder out loud, Could this be the son of David? And when Jesus asked his disciples, who do the people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, still others Elijah, and some say, well, he's one of the prophets. The disciples' response to Jesus' question about his identity may have stemmed from earlier comments that people were making about Jesus, such as those found in Mark chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, which reads, King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. And some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah. And still others claim he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. The people around Jesus knew something was special about him, even if they, they didn't quite understand it. Even his family recognized this. Have you ever felt that way about someone? There's something about that person, but I just can't put my finger on it. Even those closest to Jesus, his disciples, struggled early on with his identity. And you can find that in the comments that they were making, especially in the comment when Jesus calmed the storm while they were in the boat. Matthew 8.27 reads, They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. It has taken a while and some patient teaching by Jesus, but they were just starting to recognize who Jesus was, even if they didn't truly fully understand his mission yet. And now Jesus told Peter, Don't disclose who I am to anybody, not just yet. See, the people were looking for a Messiah. But they were looking for a Messiah who would come and save them from the rule of the Roman Empire. They were looking for a political Messiah. But Jesus came not with a political mission, but rather he came with a spiritual mission. The masses weren't ready for full disclosure yet. Mark's account of Peter's confession is kind of like the Coles Notes version. That is, it's condensed compared to when you read about it in the Gospels, uh, like Matthew. Mark leaves out Jesus' praise for Peter's confession of who Christ is. In Matthew's account, he records it as, Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. It's believed and evidence supports that Mark was the scribe for Peter, recording Peter's account of his time as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Mark himself was not a disciple, but today we would call him a biographer of Peter's story. What's interesting in Mark's gospel is that Peter leaves out the praise that Jesus blessed him with. Peter's humility is evident as he left out what a lot of people who have overflated egos would not only include in their own biographies, but they would emphasize in bold, big, capital letters, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, praised me for my answer. That wasn't Peter, though. 
But as we shall see as we continue looking on in the Gospel of Mark, though Peter left out the praise, Peter includes those incidents in his life that were less flattering to him and even embarrassing to him. Jesus renamed Peter, or sorry, Jesus renamed Simon and called him Peter, the rock. Well, I believe this rock had a layer of humility embedded within his core. About halfway through the book, Mark chapter 8 records the change in focus from the crowds unto the disciples. Jesus starts spending less time with teaching and healing the masses around him and starts to devote more time to preparing his disciples for what was to come in the near future. After Peter's declaration on behalf of the twelve, Mark's narrative becomes oriented towards the cross and the resurrection. It's at this point in Mark's gospel that we reach a pivotal moment. Mark starts to move the question from who is he to the question of what kind of Messiah is he and what does it mean to follow him? Well, those are questions for future speakers to answer. But I want to close this morning with a more personal look at the question of who do you say I am? Let's bring this question into the 21st century. Who do people today say Jesus Christ is? I tried looking for a recent survey on this question and found a few but can't really confirm their numbers, so I'm not going to look at the numbers of this. But the answers to the questions I found were quite interesting. And in a lot of ways, I believe these answers, for the most part, haven't changed over 2,000 years. Perhaps some of the reasons that people give these answers have changed, but for the most part, these answers, I believe, have remained the same. I'll start off with the answer that I believe to be true and the answer that I believe is supported in the Bible. Who do I believe Jesus Christ is? I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah who came, who was prophesied in the Old Testament, the one who created the universe and who came to this earth as one of us and yet still fully divine as part of the Trinity. It's my hope that all of you here today would answer the question of who is Jesus Christ the same way. But I know this is not going to be the case for everybody in society. And if your answer differs from mine, or if you're not quite sure who Jesus Christ is, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to speak with you. Not to condemn you or to argue with you, but to try to understand you. Some of the answers that I did come across, either in talking to people or in reading on the subject, are answers like, Jesus was a good teacher, but nothing more than that. Another answer, Jesus was the Son of God, but not part of the Trinity. Rather, he was God's first creation. Now, third answer, Jesus Christ is just a myth. And uh, it's just a myth that's been perpetuated over time. And there's probably other answers and variations of these answers that maybe some of you have come across over time. But how you answer the question of who Jesus is will undoubtedly be influenced by what your thoughts are on the authenticity of the Bible is. Some believe the Bible has been corrupted over time because it's been translated over and over. Or like a fisherman's story of the one that got away, the stories in the Bible have grown in grandeur as the years went on. I was challenged by someone with the question once of the Bible's authenticity. And a great book that I found to help answer that question is called Cold Case Christianity by Jim Warner Wallace. In it, he uses his skills as a cold case detective to help establish the chain of custody of the evidence which includes thousands of manuscripts that relate to and show and prove the authenticity and the authority of the Bible. I've also had someone challenge me with the thought of 
Jesus not being part of the Trinity. That is, Jesus is not God. Well, once the authenticity and the accuracy of the Bible can be established, then we can look to the Bible itself for the answers. And within these pages of the New Testament, you'll find John chapter 1. And elsewhere, you'll find the words of Jesus himself. Before Abraham was, I am. And elsewhere, where um, Thomas had finally believed that Jesus had been raised from the dead, Thomas spoke the words to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And elsewhere, you have the accounts of the disciples worshiping Jesus. And Jesus forgiving the sins of the paralytic before he healed them. Well, who can forgive sins but God himself? The evidence starts to stock up quickly for Jesus being God, who came down to spend time with us as one of us. Well, some believe that the Bible is just a myth, and because the Bible is just a myth, then Jesus Christ is just a myth. He never even really existed. Well, I believe that the evidence for Jesus' existence can even be found outside of the Bible. In historians and philosophers who lived during the first century A.D., during the time when the story of Jesus took place, Historians and philosophers who were not Christian and who, in fact, were often hostile to Christianity. Several such men record the existence of Jesus and or the events surrounding his crucifixion. Now, these historians don't record anything that proves the resurrection of Christ, but they do prove evidence towards his existence. However you answer the question of who is Jesus Christ, all, if they are honest, will have to agree that the name of Jesus Christ has not only survived 2,000 years, but it continues to influence people even today. Even those who believe Jesus is a myth will talk for hours about him. I can't quite figure that one out. The challenge that I have for all who would have an answer to who Jesus Christ is, is this. Is your answer based solely on an opinion or is it based on evidence? I can respect somebody and their answer, even if I don't agree with them, if they base it on evidence. I may not even agree with the evidence that they're basing it on, but I can respect the person for going the extra mile to look for the evidence for their answer. But to be honest, I have a hard time respecting an answer based solely on an opinion without much thought behind it. And by the way, I believe faith is an evidence. After all, the Bible says faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And for some, faith in their belief in Jesus Christ is is all that's required. But for others like Gideon, they need some reassurance. They need to have the evidence before they can answer that question for themselves. Who do you say I am? If you've not searched out for an answer of who Jesus Christ is with all of you, and I don't mean just listening to an answer saying, well, that sounds good, so I'm going to pick that one, or saying, well, I believe that person's uh, opinion, so I'm just going to believe them. No, but search it out critically with all of your heart and soul. Then I challenge you to do so. It's the most important question that you'll ever answer in your life and in the eternity to come. Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning in full full humility. On our own, we can do nothing worthwhile for you, for your kingdom. But through the power of your Holy Spirit that you send us, We can do mighty and wonderful things. Lord, help us to be that voice in the wilderness. The ones who today in the 21st century cry out, prepare the way. Prepare the way for the Lord, for your coming again. 
And when you come, it will be in full power and glory. Lord, teach us, show us how to be that light to the darkness that's in the world today. That people will see, not by our words, but by our actions, what it means to love and to have compassion for humanity. To pray for those that would want to see us just fade away. To pray for those who want nothing to do with you. Lord, I pray our light would never be hid under that basket, but rather we would hold it up high in full recognition that our light comes from you. Help us, Lord, as we close off our service this morning to go out there and just make somebody's day a little bit better today than it was before they came across our paths. I pray for these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.